Tonight we're going to talk about the rapture. We're also going to talk about final destination stuff. Um, I want us to read some scripture tonight. Um, before we do any of that, and, and I guess with the caveat that if you have questions about the rapture, we'll get to them. But I wanted to kind of see if anybody had any uh, thoughts they wanted to share on the study so far, things that you've learned, things that you're interested in, questions that you have, questions you want to ask, and not so much so that I can answer them because I've pretty much dumped everything I know out to you. So if you don't already know it, <laughs> I may not know it. But maybe other people have some thoughts, and uh, this is always trying to be a discussion with one another. So uh, any questions or reactions or, or stuff that God has been working on you about as we've gone through this study, um, anything that you want to know or, or kind of let, see if other people maybe are asking the same question? Did anybody have anything like that? Well, we saw last time the beast was represented by several, the bear, the lion, and the leopard. Um, what we don't get in Scripture is an interpretation of that. So what I would say is anything that we, because that was like Revelation 13. Um, there's also stuff in Daniel about those beasts. Uh, Daniel 9, I don't, I don't know, somewhere in there. Um, so or maybe 11, it might be 11. Um, all of those things are pictures that are given to us that we know they mean something, but we don't know exactly what they mean. You know what I mean? So is Russia the bear? Yeah, that's a good working theory. Can I tell you that's what it is? I can't tell you that because I don't, you know what I mean? I can't be more sure than what the Bible's told me. Um, some of the things that the New Testament does to interpret Old Testament prophecy, I would have probably just reading the Old Testament prophecy never come up with that. But the New Testament comes up with it. And, you know, some of the famous ones, you know, the sign for, uh, in Isaiah, this, this will be a sign given to you, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. As you read that chapter, that's not really, doesn't feel like you're talking about the Messiah. It feels like you're talking about a sign to someone in, in a situation right now, you know. So I wouldn't have read that and thought, ah, oh, there's a, here's a, but the New Testament authors under inspiration say, see, God was prophesying it back then. So there is some of that stuff where until God reveals it or shows us what it is. I can't tell you for sure, but that's kind of what the fun is of prophecy is trying to connect some dots. You know, where we get off track is when I tell you your dots are wrong, <laughs> you know, because we're all kind of, I mean, I'm not saying that there's not some basis to understand what they are. I tend to take those things as characteristics of not so much like a like we would look at Russia and say bear seems to fit Russia, but characteristics of the bear itself and what does that describe about these, these powers and these nations uh, as they rise up? Like, for example, leopard. What do I think of when I think of leopard? I think of swift, fast, lightning speed. Okay, so that to me it says more of that than it does, well, that represents African nations or, or whatever. So that's kind of how I look at it. Does that make sense? Anybody else thoughts on that stuff, Tony? I just wanted to add a little thing to that because like in Acts, when it's talking about they're going to replace Judas, and then they quote the scripture out of Psalm, but I would have never made that connection. Yes, yes. This is what we're supposed to do about Judas. Absolutely. Yeah, it, I, I think there's, there's enough humility, that if we will embrace it, to recognize that God works beyond our understanding, and sometimes on purpose like that. Sometimes it just takes a work of the Spirit for us to get it, you know? And so I'm, I'm all right with that. How about you? Any other thoughts about that stuff or other? Yeah. Yeah. In, in the uh, futuristic view of prophecy, especially Revelation, when you read it, 
that's scary, awful stuff, isn't it? And I don't know if you went back and read all the bowls and the trumpets and all that stuff, but that is ridiculously scary stuff. And if you see that as God pouring his wrath out on sin, suddenly my vengeance seems wimpy, right? And when when God says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, you start to get the oomph of you are not going to ever measure up to God's pouring out of justice. You don't need to. It's useless. It's foolish. It's faithless for me to try to exact revenge or to feel superior or haughty or or fed up or whatever with people who are sinful because what they face is unimaginable. So if you ever feel like you look around and you see wicked people doing well and you're like, what's going on, God? Take a look into prophecy. Take a look into their end and that's what the Psalm, Psalm 37, Psalm 73, that's what they say. I, I was downcast, and then I remembered their end. And that I'm not downcast anymore about my lot in life. I'm thankful for God's saving grace for me. And I'm shaking in my boots for what's coming for them. It gives us a heart of mercy instead of a heart of uh, a hammer for them. Good. I think that's a great point. Other thoughts, ideas? Mary. What does 666 refer to? Yeah, uh, there's a... You know, the thing that's interesting about 666 is so much of prophecy is either clearly uh, picturesque or literal, right? We've got the Valley of Megiddo, a literal place, and you're like, okay. And then you got blood up to the bride, the horse bits and stuff like that. And you kind of like, that feels very literal. The Jerusalem and, and the sanctuary and desecrating the temple and just literal stuff. And then you got li- lions and bears and, and whatever. And you've got stars getting cast out of, a third of the stars cast out of heaven and, and stuff. And like, what, what's going on here, you know? So there's picture and there's literal 666 as a number, his, the number of his name and the number of man seems so literal, but it could be kind of either. It could refer to, I've seen it refer to a lot of different things. Is it, a, is it some code for his name? Is it whatever? I think it's one of those, those mysteries that is wide open to guessing about because it ends with that. What we were, you know, at the end of, I think that's chapter 13. At the end of chapter 13, it says, here's the number. And then it moves on. And every time it comes back to the mark of beast, it doesn't mention 666 again. It mentions they worshiped the beast and received his mark. They worshiped the beast and received his mark. And it never comes back and tells us what's the deal with this, you know? So is it, uh, you know, is it some uh, banner, you know, some, some slogan or whatever that they wear as, thing or is it something that's tattooed on them is it a card that they have and you know we don't know we actually literally don't know what it is we just know what's that it could just be a mark yeah it could be a literal tattoo um does it mean anything Uh, right what people do when they say stuff means stuff in the bible is they notice patterns but there's very few times where the Bible gives a number a specific meaning. Most of the time, it's what you notice. So when I say to you 40, the number 40, what we see is almost every time you see the number 40, you see you know, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, you see uh, uh, 
children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, right? So you kind of, you start to pick up a pattern of it, right? Um, so that's where that stuff comes from. It's, it's like reading in. It's, it's what we would call uh, inferred meaning as opposed, as opposed to definitive meaning. So the number six in the Bible, when you see that number, it says the number of man. So what's that mean? Does it mean man was, man was created on the sixth day? Okay, I can, I can make a connection there. But it doesn't, it doesn't make the connection for me. So then I'm in the realm of guess away. You know, I put a thing, I, I think I said this earlier on. I put a thing on the Facebook page way back when where there was a dude who um, was saved from Islam. And when he saw the Greek characters for 666, he said, those aren't Greek characters at all. Those are Muslim characters. Those are, that, that is Arabic for the symbol, symbols that you would expect to find if an army went out with the banner or on their hats or on their arms uh, in the name of Allah, conquer. And I thought that was like, there you go. That, that's where it gets fun to kind of like, huh, I guess it doesn't have to be a number at all. Maybe, maybe it looked like numbers, but because John is just seeing a vision, he's not Arabic. He doesn't know, but he's trying to tell us what he sees. And he goes, well, what I see is this. And he tries to copy it almost as a picture. And I thought, well, there you, there's a whole different way of looking at it. So there's a lot of room for people to come up with what does 666 mean. Um, hopefully, as we talked last time about how to get the mark, we understand that you know, it's a little bit, it's not as um, accidental as people might sometimes think. So good. Anybody else? That's part of the fun of this stuff is we get to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, if, if what you see in the media about Christians marched out to a beach and beheaded happened here, would you have a different reaction? So that, I mean, we are a little self-involved, aren't we? Because they're as much my brother across the sea, my brother and sister as they are if they live next door to me. They, we're connected spiritually for all eternity. But, you know, I'm heartbroken for half hour or whatever, and then move it on with life because it's about, who's it about? It's about me. So some of my shelteredness is my self-involvedness, you know? And I think for me, as I look at the church of Jesus Christ in, in, in the world in which you and I live, this Western culture, I wonder when God wakes us up. Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. So is that showing up in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your, in your battle against sin in your life? Is that showing up or is it under control? And should the spirit ever be under control or should be in control of you? You know what I mean? So I think some t- for me, as we look at this stuff, I go, there needs to be a stirring. And, and because the stakes are so huge, you know, the, the pettiness uh, that we get into as believers over, you know, I don't like this person or I, I got all this other stuff to do. The way that we allow the busyness of our lives and the scheduling of our lives to overrun our devotion to the cause of Christ, whether it's church, whether it's, you know, Bible, whether it's sharing our faith, whatever, the way we are so easily steamrolled, I think is, is pathetic for, I'm saying for me, I think it's pathetic. So 
where does God raise us up with people who look around and instead of sitting down in church and saying, do I like this song? And was that an interesting message? And could I stay awake? And I don't know, I'll go to a different church and whatever. And we make it all about that. Where is the take out the banner for the cause of Christ and let's go win the world. And let's make sure that this place is on fire. And because people are lost and they're dying and they face this forever. Where's that? If we get all well, I believe this and I believe this about the end times and you're wrong about the bear and 666 means this. If we get all that, you've missed the whole reality of why it's said. All of this stuff is said and it's said in a context. You ever think, what did the author want me to get from this? Why was this written? We're going to look at that and we look at the rapture a little bit, but why was this written? So we're going to start. I want to go back and touch on the thing we ended last time. Um, Eternal destination. Where do people go forever? So let's go back to the end of the Bible, Revelation 20, and let's read what it says. This is uh, the passage that happens after the passage we read about um, the millennium and the rebellion at the end of the millennium. And so at the end of this reign of Christ, whatever they're referring to, whether it's post-millennialism, amillennialism, whatever that, whatever your view is on that, at the end of that, this is what it says. And this is why, again, this is why I would never uh, want to head towards allegorical reading of some of this stuff because then this stuff turns into allegorical stuff. And to me, this is very, very literal. So here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hell, or Hades, gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and hell, death and Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown at the lake of fire. Let that hit you. Anyone who was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It's interesting because they are judged based on what? They're judged on their works. You think some good people will think that they've got a shot when the book of their works are opened? But guess what? It, what it, what's it conclude with? How many people got saved by their works? None. It came down to, well, your works didn't measure up, so let's take a look at the Lamb's Book of Life. And anyone who's not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life is cast into the lake of fire. That eternal destination, pretty somber stuff. Um, I messed up here on the top of your notes, so I'm going to give you some revised def, uh, references here. The, the second reference there is supposed to be 2 Thessalonians 2.10, not 2.9. And the third reference is supposed to be Matthew 24, Verse 41. So I'm going to go to Matthew 24, um, and I'm going to read you what Jesus says um, in verse 41. I'm sorry. Why did I lose? No, it is 25. I'm sorry. I, I Somehow I got here and I read that wrong again. It is 25. All right. So Matthew 25, 41, it says this. Then he, it's, it's talking about this judgment. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into 
the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, what kind of fire is it? So what does that imply about these who are thrown into this fire? There's an eternal suffering. There's no point to the fire being eternal. No point to calling out the fire as eternal unless there is eternal punishment for those without God. It kind of makes any of our vengeance pale, doesn't it? Any of our sense of like, uh, uh, you got the best of me and I'm not going to let you. Down the verse 46, we have a, a different eternity. It says they, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Okay, so there, is, there are two options for eternity, eternal life and eternal death. Um, as I said last time, there are people today who would like to, and I completely understand it, would like to make the Bible say that either your time in hell is short-lived because you are destroyed. It's called annihilationism, which is you're burned up and gone, and that's the end of you. Um, there is also the purgatory kind of idea where you suffer for a while and then after you've been cleansed of your sins, then you... But the Bible never teaches anything like that. The Bible teaches that you have an eternal destination, heaven or hell. And hell is an awful place. It's described as a lake of fire. It's described as eternal fire. Eternal fire. It's described as a place where the worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. Terrible place, an awful place. But there is life for believers, okay? And so that's, the, that's what this all winds up at, at the end. Now, that's... Oh, go ahead, Tony, sorry. One of the things I was going to say, one of the Puritans I read, Richard Baxter, had made a point in one of his sermons that everybody was going to get a glorified body, even the ones who are in the hell, because they would need something that will be able to withstand the exquisite pain that they were going to experience mm-hmm. during yeah, it, I think if you were to let that affect your soul, we would live differently as believers. I think there are times where we cannot because it's, it's too much. If it's a, you know, a loved one that, that dies and I don't know where they went or whatever, I, you know, there's limits on us as human beings. But the concept there of what's at stake tells you that everything else you've ever put your life into is nothing in comparison to the cause of Christ. Because this is what's at stake, eternity for people. Not that everybody will respond if we, if we get out there and champion Christ, but man, oh man, don't you want to champion Christ out there? So we want to do that. Now, that, that's an eternal thing, and there's judgments and there's resurrections. We saw the resurrection at the second coming. We're going to look at some rapture passages about resurrection. This resurrection in Revelation 20 is at the very end of time for the great white throne. So there seem to be several different resurrections, at least in Revelation 20, one at the beginning of the kingdom where the righteous come to life and at the end where the unrighteous come back to life. So everyone is returned to life, righteous or unrighteous, uh, around the kingdom of God. Right now, what happens to people when they die? How do we know what happens to people when they die? All right, so let's take a look at some of that. Um, Hebrews 9.27. Somebody get that verse for me, Hebrews 9.27. And we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
So Hebrews 9.27, what's a, somebody want to get that for me? Who would like to look that up for me? All right, Linda? Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Okay. That's, I mean, he's using it, Paul's using that in the course of talking about something. But what he says is, man is destined or appointed to die. There is an appointment that you and I have with death. Every person on the face of this earth has an appointment with death, right? What happens, according to Paul, what happens after death? The judgment. So that, what does that imply? That judgment happens after death, what's that imply? You're going to, some destination is going to happen. What else does it imply? You're not coming back. You're appointed to die once. It's sealed, right? What's that? You face the judge. You face your creator. Um, there are some people who believe that when you die, you go to sleep. Is that what that seems to imply? No, and there's more than just that. So let's take a look at a couple other passages. The one that Tony references, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Therefore, we are always confident and knowing that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith and not sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, the, the options are at home in the body, therefore away from God, or like in presence, whatever. Not that God isn't with me, but not in heaven, on earth. But when I leave this body, absent from the body, my body is not me. When I am absent from this body, I am at home with the Lord. I am present with the Lord. So there is this immediate shift. So when, when people from our fellowship who know Christ, when they pass from this earth, when we talk at their funeral, we say, we know where they are right now. Where they're not asleep. They're not, we're not putting them into the ground. We're putting this tent into the ground. Right now, they are with their Lord and they're rejoicing. And they're having a party. We're not because we're brokenhearted. We, we miss them. But they are. And it's an awesome, incredible thing. So there is a judgment after death. That judgment means you are conscious, aware, alive. You will answer for the choices of your life at death. Your, your fate is sealed and the judge will make the call. And then you go, in, in this instance, you go absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's a story at the end of the crucifixion about a thief on the cross. And Jesus, he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? When? Today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Not when I come into my kingdom. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today. So there is an immediacy of your eternal destination following death. Your spirit goes to be heaven or hell. Go ahead, Scott. That doesn't mean that while we're alive, if we're believers, that we're not with the Lord. No, no, exactly. It's a different sense, though, obviously. Like right now, I, I believe when I die, that there will be a different way that I'm with the Lord than I am now. Maybe it's a veil that I can't quite see how much I am with the Lord, but I will experience it in a different way than I, than I do now as I'm connected and attached to this body. But yeah, the Lord is with us and we are with Him. The Bible talks about Ephesians 1, we are seated in the heavenlies with Him, so we are as secure as we ever could be, but there's a different presence, as Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians. Uh, when I'm gone from this body, then I am at home, I am present with God uh, and the limitations of humanity. On the other hand, well, I, uh, yeah, on the other hand, in Luke 16, there's a parable Jesus taught, except it's probably not a parable because he uses a proper name. 
It's a story about a poor man named Lazarus and a rich man, and they die. And the Bible says that after they died, it says about Lazarus, who was wicked, in hell, he lifted up his eyes. The implication is, when he died, he found eternal destiny, right? So all of those have the implication that when you die, you are in the presence of God or not in the presence of God. You face a judge or or, or God, as a judge, makes a call, and therefore you wind up in the presence of God, heaven, or away from the presence of God in hell, in torment. And it says in hell, he was in torment. And he said, have Lazarus come and give me just a drop of water to ease my pain. So it is a very real torment. So that's what's at stake here. And that's where this is all going. And that's why all this really matters. Okay. Uh, Not because I'm smarter than you or you're smarter than me or you're right and I'm wrong or whatever. Uh, We can have a lot of fun with digging into the mysteries of it, but don't lose sight of the big point. Okay. Now we're going to talk today, tonight, a little bit about the rapture. And I want to show you the major passages of that. The concept of the rapture is this. There are some passages in the Bible, and we're going to look at the, the, the two main ones tonight, where the Bible talks about being caught up, uh, being gathered up uh, with Jesus, by Jesus, when he comes back for his children, when he comes back to get us, okay? And so if you've ever seen uh, the movies uh, Left Behind, uh, Thief in the Night, the idea is that it is very fast, that believers are taken off of this earth, Okay, um, and and that we then will be with the Lord, and we're gonna we're gonna see why that is. The word rapture, when you hear that word, that is not a word you will find in the Bible anywhere. Okay, it is a word that came from the the Latin Vulgate, which was for a long time the Bible because Latin was the language. The Latin Vulgate, when you got to the passage we're going to read next, the word where it says we were caught up in the air with him or we we're gathered up and snatched up into the air with him, it's the word, the Latin word that was there, raptizo, rapture, okay? And, and you, we have the same idea of, you know, when you are enraptured with someone, you're caught up in the feelings of it and all that stuff. That's the idea. It's not a Bible word. It's a word that represents what we believe is a, uh, you know, a biblical truth that one day Jesus comes back for his church and catches us out of this earth grabs us out of this earth, okay? So let's look at the two major passages, and then we'll talk about the, the big question is not whether Jesus comes back for us or not. It's when does he come back for us in this whole prophetic thing, all right? So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is, the to me, the really uh, touchstone passage about this idea of God coming back for his people. So um, we're going to start at verse 13. We're going to get down to the end of the chapter. The first thing I want to say to you before we read this is this. Both of these passages have a bigger point than teaching us about prophecy. Okay? Notice, just like when, when Linda read that passage about absent from the body with present with the Lord, it's a snippet from the middle of a conversation Paul is having. This is, he's giving them this information for some purpose. When you read the Bible, don't go into the Bible so you can just gather a bunch of information. This is not a test. You know, there's no final exam, there's no midterms. You know, you're not getting a report card when you get before the Lord and you made the president's list. There's none of that, right? It is for some reason they're trying to communicate this to you. So tell me when we read this, what is, what's the point Paul's trying to communicate? Why did he share this information? All right, verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death 
so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, so there's that we will be caught up with the Lord in the air. We, the, the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's a resurrection of those who are dead in Christ, and then we're caught up in the air with Him. What's the point? What's Paul? Why does Paul talk about this, and what's he trying to get across to the body of Christ? Tony? He's giving you hope that, that the death of the body is at the end of anything. Yes. Kind of like the beginning of something else. Yeah. He's saying, now listen, some of you have lost loved ones. I want you to know what's coming so that when you lose them, it's sad and it's sorrowful, but I want you to be able to encourage one another with the truth of resurrection and the truth of redemption. I think there was a thought in Thessalonica that when you died, you missed out on the second coming, on, on Jesus returning. You know, you missed out on it. And he says, no, no, no. We will not prevent those. We will not hold back those who have fallen asleep. As a matter of fact, they're a little bit down further than us, so they're going to go first. You know, they, they need a little bit of a head start. So the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together, together with them, to meet the Lord where? In the air. Okay? So that, that's the encouragement that he's trying to give people who have lost someone that was loved. He's trying to say to them, listen, I'm not, he's not so much trying to teach us detail by detail of it'll happen before a tribulation. He's not really trying to do that so much as he's trying to say, take this and now live this truth that, God, that Jesus is coming back for us. And he will, uh, those who have died and those of us who are living will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we will forever then be with the Lord. Jim? You get the impression that uh, Paul was saying that to them because they thought Jesus was coming back soon in their lifetime? Yes, I think so. Um, I think they're, you know, the we who are alive and re- remain feels like there was an expectancy there. Uh, there are some arguments against that. People talk about Peter knew he was going to live to be an old man because Jesus told him that and whatever. So unless Peter was already old. But, but I think those pale in comparison to the expectancy that they lived in, especially as they read the warnings of Jesus and they saw the trouble coming where Jesus said, it's going to get bad. And they said, it's getting really bad. So I think there was definitely an expectancy for the Lord to come back and rescue them then, for sure. Yeah, I do. You just said that when you put the person in the ground, their soul's already in Christ. Yes. Okay. Okay. So... This came up at a funeral, that's why. Yeah, yeah. So what gets raised? Their, their soul is with the Lord. So what gets raised? Their body. As a matter of fact, your body gets changed too. Uh, in 1 John 3, the Bible says that when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So when we are caught up, even if I'm alive, 
my body's transformed, just like the, the body of a, uh, someone who died is transformed. But there will be a resurrection, a reuniting of their body and spirit with an eternal body, right? Just like Christ, when he died and his body was on the cross, right? Then, when the, then there was a reuniting body and spirit, but with a resurrected body, a glorified body, post-resurrection. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, go ahead, right. so if I died tonight, my soul would be with Jesus. Yes. So that's so that's what it means you're asleep in Christ, that your body... Yes. Yes. Your body is, for, in a nice way of putting it, asleep <laughs> because it, there's nothing there other than the substance God gave for your earthly tent. But there will be a transformation into an eternal glorified body and that transformation happens at that resurrection. So I don't agree with this Yes. What about people who got yeah. by a shark? Yeah. I've heard that before. That's why you shouldn't be cremated, right? Because then you're then you then what? What happens if you're cremated? He can't. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's because because God needs you to be in some state of okayness in order for Him to resurrect you. Because the big deal is the body that you have here, right? Of course not. You think when he talks about the Old Testament saints getting raised up, how much of their physical body do you think is left thousands of years later? It's not about that at all, is it? And by the way, it would, it's really stinks if you had to be a martyr where your body got burned, right? Because too bad for you. Jesus can't put those pieces back together. It's not, about, it's not about the power of God, isn't it? So it's not, oh no, what if I got lost at sea and a shark bit my foot off? It's not about any of that mess, right? It's about the fact that God is going to give me a new body, right? And, and that body is not so literally connected to my physical body that, that God is limited by whether I was cremated or found or, or whatever. And because and, what we also believe, it's not limited by how the limitations my body had on this earth. If I was born with some deformity or I was born with some lack or disability, you think I'm going to have that in heaven? Of course not. I'm going to be recreated. And that's not because God said, oh, good, I've got something to work with here. Because the same God that, that formed man out of the dust of the ground, the point is it was the dust of the ground, not this was special dust. It's just the dust of the ground, and God made it alive. And so God can make your dust alive too, right? Scott? Uh, is, is this kind of like a, isn't it like a false expectation though? Because how about when you talk to people, you know, whose loved ones died, and, you know, I tend to say, oh, well, you know, you'll, you'll see them again. You'll see them again in heaven. And then, you know, I'm really truthfully thinking to myself, I don't know if you're going to see them there. Yeah. Because it's narrow. It's narrow. So am I wrong to well, them that way? Well, I would say this. Right. I think you do need to tell the truth. But I also think this. The, the thief on the cross tells us that anybody can accept Christ, you know, before they go. So I don't know. Right. I'm not the one to tell you whether or not. I can say to people, and I've said this a lot of times, you know, especially people who, you know, their family members have witnessed and testified to them. And I say to them, listen, if, if I were you, I would just choose to believe that in their last moments when God gave them that opportunity. And you, if you've ever been on that journey with somebody, you know that towards the end, a lot of times there's like that moment of clarity that someone has. And I think God sometimes gives that to somebody to be able to receive Christ. Word speaking it or not speaking it. And I say, I would just believe that, you know, God in his grace met them there and, and they received him because I don't know that I want to believe the other thing and I don't know that I need to believe the other thing 
you know what I mean, that they, they refused him or whatever. It, it, maybe they did, maybe they, but I don't know that I can live with that burden like I know something that I don't know. So uh, I think you have to say it in that way. I choose to believe this or whatever. I don't think you can be like, I know you'll see him again. But it, it is a narrow road. It is a, yeah, it is a narrow road and, and that's for God to decide. So I don't, I think, is it false hope? It's real hope in that anyone who trusts Christ goes to heaven and that I don't know if they did or not, but I, I'm just going to choose to believe they did. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't know what the downside of that is, right? So that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Here. So, oh, crap, I forgot. <laughs> 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 okay, sorry. Um, so, you know how you were saying that um, the glorified body, like, there's not the limitations and stuff, like, when that, like, what this is that we're talking about, we're reading about right now. Um, does that mean that, or do you think, I guess, like, if I were to die today and my soul is with the Lord, do, does that soul have, like, limitations until my glorified body? Well, it's not, yeah, it doesn't have the, limitations is a hard thing to say, but it doesn't have the same experience as it will post-resurrection, no. Yeah, it will be a spiritual existence rather than a physical spiritual existence. Um, we were obviously created to have both. You know, God created us with a body and breathed into us a soul. So we were created to have both. We are disembodied as spirits. We, we, we live on eternally as a soul, which is the real you, but we don't have that experience of being in a body again until the resurrection. And I think you could see that as we, as we read this. If you read verse 14, we believe Jesus died and rose again, kind of reminding them God has the power to do this resurrection thing. Remember, we all believe that, right? And then he says, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus, bring with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. And then later on, he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. So you see the two parts, right? The souls of the believers come with him, and then the bodies of those who are in Christ are risen. And so there's a reunification in a resurrection. Okay, that's what resurrection is. When Lazarus um, was dead and in the tomb, his body wasn't there. He called it back, right? Uh, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, different Lazarus, but Lazarus through, send Lazarus back. His body wasn't in Abraham's bosom. He wanted him to send his spirit back to be reunited with his body so that he would be raised again. That's what resurrection is. The, the soul is eternal, reunited with the body and quickening and reanimating uh, that body, re-enlivening that body. But in this rapture thing, it is a transformation. Uh, and you can see that in 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit more. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the Bible talks about, you know, the dead in Christ and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air. So now here's where it starts to get a little dicey. That's, that's for sure. There's, there comes a day, Jesus returns for us, we're gone from this earth and with him forever. The dead in Christ rise first and they're reunited, those who are alive and remain, caught up in the air. That's the truth of the word of God. When does that happen? That's where it gets some dicey, okay? Some people believe this is the same as the second coming. You know, we looked at the second coming when Jesus comes down on the Mount of Olives and wipes out the enemies at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. Um, and so they say, on his way down, Jesus gathers us up, raises everyone, and we all are reunited. And then we kind of like, we, we're up in the air and then we come back with him right then at that moment. Okay? Um, do you notice any differences between what we just read and second coming passages that we read before? This one, Jesus is in the air, and for the second coming, he steps foot on the Yeah, there's a difference between meeting the Lord in the air and him ste- stepping foot on the Mount of Olives, right? 
like the, those those two things are the idea doesn't mean that they can't can't be an in process thing but there's definitely a specific difference between those two caught up together to meet the lord in the air right and the other one the lord comes through the clouds and touches the earth by the way as you follow along the progression of that in Zechariah 14 the resurrection of the righteous happens after his feet touch the earth same thing in Revelation 20. The resurrection of the righteous happens after his feet touch the earth, after he's here to establish his kingdom. So there seems to be some divergence between second coming and this thing that Paul's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay? So there's a little bit of difference with that. So what, who are those yeah, good question. Well, who gets who is involved in this passage? In this passage? Yes. In 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay, let's look at the let's look at the terms. Um, those who have fallen asleep, verse fourteen, in Him, right? Um, the Lord Himself will come down, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up with the Lord in the air. So there is a sense that this is people who are in Christ from this passage. I will tell you biblically, theologically you do not find Old Testament saints being spoken of as being in Christ. So this seems to be limited to the body of Christ. This seems to be the resurrection and the gathering of the church. Yep. Yep. From Jesus' resurrection on, those who put their trust in Christ, because those were the people who would be in Christ, you know, Pentecost and all and onward, people who would be in Christ. That's where, I mean, it's a little technical, but that's what people would believe, that that resurrection, this resurrection is for Christians. So Jews that accept Christ would be in the body of Christ? Yes, absolutely. Yes, they would. And technically, I mean, if you, how do Old Testament saints get saved? They get saved by the sacrifice of Christ. The difference is they're not spoken of as being in Christ in that theological way. It's not that they're not saved the same way, but the, the, the verbiage is not used the same way. So who then would get resurrected at the second coming? Those guys. Who's those guys? <laughs> <laughs> the people over here, they all get resurrected. <laughs> those who were before Jesus Christ, the Old Testament saints, right? Those would be, and that seems to line up with the idea of the ushering in of the promised kingdom to Israel, that those who under that idea of God's uh, revelation, right, would be resurrected to the kingdom at the end of the, and obviously anybody who dies during the tribulation that for, as a martyr would be resurrected, any righteous person who died during the, but that second resurrection is called the resurrection of the righteous, this one is called the dead in Christ will rise. And so there's a broader term for the resurrection at, in Revelation 20 at um, the inauguration of the kingdom. This is not exact, as you can tell. This is best guess, but that kind of seems like the outflow of it. Yeah, that's a whole different theological. <laughs> yeah. what, was, what did Jesus do while he was in the grave? That's a whole different theological thing. Yeah. <laughs> just, just the book of Mark. That's all. <laughs> but why do you think that 
Yeah, I, I don't exactly know what the point of that is, but I would say this. It, there is a... Um, there are other things we didn't look at in prophecy, like the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church has a special relationship with Jesus. We are called the bride of Christ. Old, Old Testament believers are not called the bride of Christ. They are called God's wife. It's a different thing. And uh, I don't understand. I don't either, but I'm just saying there's different titles on that, right? God is spoken of as being married to Israel. And, and gives them a writing of divorcement and sends them away. And Hosea and Gomer are an illustration of God's marriage to Israel. New Testament, church is the bride of Christ. And so the, the gathering of the church is meant to seal that relationship eternally. So will we forever be with the Lord, those who are in Christ. And so whatever that is, you know, the, the, like I said before in Revelation 22, you find uh, both the 12 apostles and the 12 sons of Israel represented in the New Jerusalem. So there is some representation or understanding that there was a time when God worked through Israel in this way, and, and that remains, and there's a time where God worked through the church, through the apostles in that way, and those things remain, and they bear witness throughout eternity for the goodness of God. So this would be, in my opinion, it would be because the church is the bride of Christ, and it is time for Jesus to gather his bride uh, at that moment. Uh, it's also because theologically, there are for, for some of the things that are connected to this, in my mind, the stuff that's about to unfold in uh, the tribulation period that we looked at last time, or the last two times, are not for the church. And I'm going to show you that in a second. Dave, what do you want to say? What did I want to say? Um, the second coming... The second coming is the start of the thousand-year reign. Yes. Okay. Um, then, do we know what happens to people who die during that thousand years? Yeah, we don't. We don't. But we do know that it's at the end of that is the great white throne judgment is discussed. So either we could believe that anyone who accepts Christ lives forever, is either immediately glorified or glorified at the end, but is miraculously sustained, or they are resurrected at the end and glorified or whatever, but there's, it's very silent on that uh, about the end. Mary? Yes. Yeah, good question. Um, unclear. Uh, with God, yes. Uh, in the same way we are going to be with God, unclear. Because when Jesus talks about the parable of the rich man of Lazarus, Lazarus is not spoken of as being in heaven. He's spoken of as being in Abraham's bosom. And what's that mean? You know, like, so there's some, like, we could dig into that and try to, like, I, what's that trying to say? We don't exactly know if, if the death of Christ and the resurrection enabled the opening of heaven in a different way. There's a lot of people who believe that, and that seems to make some sense. Um, so that's a little bit beyond the, the, uh, the, the vision that God gives us as to what's going on uh, out there. Joy. That the second coming has already happened. Well, yes, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. What's that? Yeah, the, uh, it's a. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's. You know, t 
to say that Jesus has already come, you have to t- then take what is said to follow his return, which hasn't. So that either makes the Bible wrong or you wrong that he's come. You know what I mean? So I think that's, that's what I do. I kind of go, I, I, I don't see how you can, with integrity, look at a passage like Zechariah 14 and, and read what it says and say, well, then he's come like that. Because it talks about a mountain splitting. It also talks about him ruling the whole earth. It talks about him stopping rain from those who don't come to worship him at the temple. You know what I mean? And that, that hasn't happened. So either the Bible's wrong about that or he hasn't come. My question would be, how really are you going to separate the fact that Israel is mentioned as the wife of God and the believers as the bride of Christ when Ezekiel and Jeremiah talked about a new covenant to Israel yes. this came to initiate the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And in Romans it talks about the sins being set aside for a time and, and, and I guess that time was waiting for Christ, that final outpouring of blood that would bring an end to all those blood sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. I, and Revelation mentions, Jesus says, the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in our Lord. Yep. Revelation refers to him. Yeah. I do think, I would say to this to you, Tony, I think there is some significance to the difference between the bride of Christ and, and the marriage of God to Israel. I think there is some theologically significant difference between those two. As significant theologically as saying God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is real truth to they are one, absolutely. But there's also real truth that they are three in one. And so for whatever reason, Paul in in specific calls out the church as the bride of Christ. That's what I just take. I don't understand exactly how you make those lines of demarcation, but that's kind of like, okay, I'll take that for what that is. Uh, Could be wrong. Like you're saying, there is a unity in Christ. Doesn't matter Jew or Greek and well point, well taken. Um, but I guess as you get deeper into some of this, you know, reading this passage and trying to connect to that passage, it's why I say eschatology is so much guesswork, you know? Yeah, please do. Please do. Send me a message. To... Well, wouldn't they have been interpreting writing from their perception of their times. So the, the, um, the Hebrews had more than one wife. So why couldn't God have more than one bride? Yeah, well, uh, I would say that would, that would not really gel well with the commands in Scripture to only have one wife. Yeah, because what you see throughout the Old Testament is every guy that winds up with more than one wife winds up with very clear trouble. I mean, it's not subtle. It's not subtle. It's every single time. David and Abraham and Jacob and all of it it just blows up in their face. And that's narratively, that's the way that that's represented in the Bible as a, you know, a tale of caution. Don't do what God said not to do. So I would say um, God would not present himself as, you know, polygamous in that way. Uh, so I think there is, that's why I say, I think there is some significance to that separation, even though there's also overlap to it because the body of Christ and, you know, Israel really are represented by the same covenant. The, the new covenant is for all of them. Um, but there does seem to be, like, in other words, I would not say, 
that I have enough in the Bible to say that Israel or Old Testament saints like David and, and Abraham will physically be at the marriage supper of the Lamb as the bride of Christ just because of the way the New Testament speaks about the church as the bride of Christ and never, never feeds that back into the Old Testament. It, it, whenever the, the Bible's talking in the New Testament about the church, it never overlaps back into Israel. It always separates. We saw in Romans uh, 11 and 9, it, it separates Israel and the church as it talks about them. It never uses the word church or that relationship of bride of Christ to refer to Israel. So that's why I keep that separation. Um, it's not absolute. <laughs> and there's a lot of mysteries to God that we will never get. So feel free to interpret it a different way. I'm just going to share with you what I got out of it. All right. When does this happen? So let me just kind of get through that real quick because we're kind of almost out of time. And then you can read the rest of this on your own. Um, what I would say is there are kind of three different, really four, but there are really three different ideas about when do we get, when does Jesus come back? And they're all in reference to this tribulation period. So if you are, you don't believe in a tribulation period, you just think basically you're probably what we would call post-tribulation, which means that this gathering happens at the end. When Jesus comes back, you are caught up in the clouds. Uh, on the back side of the page, the, the post-tribulation position says that the second coming and the rapture are connected as part of the same event. In other words, God gathers us up while Jesus is still in the air, and then we come back with him uh, as an army. Um, you know, in Revelation 2.10 and verse 22, uh, two churches at least are warned about Christians or people who are part of the church going into great tribulation. Um, we are repeatedly warned that we will face tribulation in this world. You know, in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Um, they would say that God promised to save us from eternal wrath, not earthly wrath, that we are promised to go through trials on this earth. And, uh, and, and then again, we come back to the difference between church and Israel or not the difference. People who see Israel and the church as the same would read Mar- Matthew 24 and Mark 13 as warnings to the church. When you see this happen, run to the hills and that kind of stuff. Whereas people who would see a separation between the earth, the Israel and the church would see those as warnings to Israel where the church is already out of the way. So post-tribulation, if you're not a tribulationalist or you don't believe in the truth, you would see God gathering his people, Old Testament and new, at his second coming, resurrection for all the righteous at once, uh, and return to earth. Which means if there is a tribulation period, we're... We're going to go through it. We're going to face it, um, you know, as, as believers. Uh, that is not what I ascribe to. There are some who believe uh, mid-tribulation. In other words, we saw a couple of weeks ago that there's like this division, half and half of the tribulation, 42 months and 42 months, you know, and, and the, the, uh, the beast breaks the covenant halfway through and that kind of things get really bad halfway through. Um, even in the, the describing of the pouring out of uh, the, the breaking of the seals and then the, pouring, the, the sounding of the trumpets, the pouring out of the bowls of wrath, there seems to be this progression of worse and worse and worse as it goes forward. So essentially, a mid-tribulation person would say that God will save us from the really awful parts of the tribulation. The first part of the tribulation is kind of bad, but we're living in some bad stuff, so it's kind of like that, maybe a little worse, but then it gets really bad, and God saves us before it gets really bad. That's kind of that idea. And so they would talk about, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, where it talks about the sounding of the trumpet. They would say, ah, I recognize trumpet. 
there are seven trumpets in Revelation. And it says it's the last trumpet. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says it's the last trumpet. So it must be the seventh trumpet. That's about the midpoint of the tribulation. So they kind of, they're doing, connecting some dots to try to get to uh, that. Um, In Revelation 11, it would mean that we are uh, escaping God's final seven bowls of wrath. Um, I want to show you what 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 say. Um, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about those days of tribulation being shortened for his followers, not eliminated, but shortened. And so these are the kind of things, even in Revelation 11, it talks about two lampstands being ascended up to heaven. And people who ascribe to this may use that as saying, well, at the beginning of Revelation, he uses lampstands to represent the church. And so in Revelation 11, when they ascend to heaven in the middle of the tribulation, that's the believers going to heaven. I don't believe that, um, but that's I, I can see both of those positions where you get some of that stuff from biblically. What I will tell you is this. I believe that we are uh, caught up, taken out of this earth before God begins to uh, pour out his wrath on this earth. Um, And the reason for that is there are many passages in the Bible that talk about being saved from God's wrath. Um, In 1 Thessalonians, where we just read chapter 4 about the rapture, chapter 5 follows right after it. And chapter 5 goes like this. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates... We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Anybody recognize day of the Lord? Huh. So after he gets done talking about we will be caught up, a couple of sentences later, he's talking about the day of the Lord coming. So it seems like there's a connection in at least Paul's narrative here between this catching up of us and the beginning, the coming of the day of the Lord, right? Um, it will come like a thief in the night. People are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on who? Them, suddenly. Back in chapter 4, it was we. Now it's them, okay? Um, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you. You are children of light. So then, uh, let us be not like others who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. Um, Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what I would say is, as I read that, here's what I hear Paul saying. Listen, we don't, you don't need to be in the dark about what's coming. We're going to be taken off this earth and it's going to get really bad, but don't worry. God has not appointed us. God has not sent us for, marked us for wrath. And the tribulation is spoken of over and over again as a time of God's wrath. We saw, as you go back to your notes, we saw again and again it was spoken of as a time of God's wrath. And so to me, the, the language makes sense that what he's saying is we will be raptured, we will be rescued, we will be saved off this earth, and then God's wrath will begin. It makes sense in light of Second Thessalonians 2 where it talks about there's somebody holding, there's a force holding back the man of lawlessness, the force of lawlessness. And then suddenly that force is removed. And then he has full reign to do all kinds of wicked things. What is that, what is that force? Where does the Holy Spirit live? So the removal of believers seems to fit that. I'm not absolute on that, but I'm telling you that's what I think, right? Maybe 50.1%, that's what I think, okay? Um, Revelation as you read chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's all about the church, the church, the church. You get to chapter 4, and there's no church. The only believers you see are believers who are in heaven. 
around the throne. You don't see any believers on the earth. So there, and that's pretty specific since it started off so strong about the church, the church, the church, and then all of a sudden, no more church. Now it's all about uh, believers being in heaven. Uh, Revelation 3.10, Jesus says to the church, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Um, and also there was a big thing about, you know, you would know that you don't know the day or the hour that he comes back for you. But if you knew the tribulation seven years long and it's the middle of it and there's a covenant, made, you have a pretty good idea when he's coming back. So, so there's some of those things that play into some of that stuff. Um, and I just thought I would share, you can dig into all of those. You can look up all those references um, and dive into that stuff. First Thessalonians, uh, or excuse me, first Corinthians 15, a uh, passage I read often at uh, funerals uh, is another passage about uh, the return of the Lord. And let me just read it to you for kind of like our close on this study, because again, there's a point to why he's saying this stuff. So try to pick up on the point. Listen, verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. How fast? In a flash. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable, the the mortal that I am in right now, must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. In other words, at the return of Christ, when I am changed, when my body is changed from a body that is subject to sickness and death and disease and sorrow and sin and all that stuff, is changed into my eternal body that is free from all of that humanity, then will come to pass the saying, the truth of the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. It isn't that death isn't here. It's that the victory is so much bigger than, than death. So we're all afraid of death, right? All of us are afraid of death. It's not because I don't believe or I don't trust Christ or whatever. It's, it's an unknown. It's a process. I'm not, I, I just, it hurts when people leave me or when I leave them. It's a bad thing. It's an awful thing. Death is a huge, horrific thing that we have to face all the time in this earth. But what he says here is death is swallowed up in victory. As bad as the pain is, as bad as the loss is, it will be swallowed up as though it never existed. So does that tell you how great the victory is of our Lord? That it can overcome the deepest wounds of your life, the loss of one you love, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, the loss of a friend or a parent or somebody like that, that that it just ruined you. That the power of God through resurrection, through immortality, through coming back and, and, and rescuing his people would take death and just utterly defeat it. And it says, thanks be to God who always gives us the victory, even in death, who always gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The point of that passage is not, so this is what's going to happen. The point of that passage is don't let death feel like the final word. Don't believe that death is bigger than God. Don't believe that anything is bigger than your Lord because he always gives you the victory. So if he's the victor over death, then he's probably the victor over whatever you're facing. The darkness of today and the struggle of this moment and the despair and the the hurtful words and the, the deeds that have been done against you. He's the victor of death. He's the victor over all of that, right? And it will be swallowed up in victory because he always gives us the victory. Pretty cool stuff, huh? All right. Well, I've had a lot of fun doing that. If anybody needs notes from any of the past weeks, I have most of them up here. You're welcome to them. Um, If you would like the whole 
whatever it is, 15 pages or whatever it is. I can email you the Word document. You just got to let me know. Uh, you can email me and say, could you send it to me? I'll attach it and send it to you. Um, but it's been a, a good study and hopefully something that at least gives you your bearings on where does the Bible say that and what does it actually say and what doesn't it say so that as people try to teach you and you read books or you watch TV, you're not uh, just uh, subject to every breeze that comes along. You kind of know, well, I can see it for myself and I can know what it means because ultimately God wrote the Bible so you could know what he wants you to know. Um, and he also wrote it limited so that there would be things that you don't know and that's on purpose. So be okay with both, you know, be okay with being studious and, and digging into knowing what God wants you to know and be okay with there are things he didn't reveal and I'll be all right with that and let God have it all.